0: If we're going to stand for something and act on behalf of what we believe, politics can't just be uh, dispensed with. It. And if you're going to do it, do it well, okay. If you're going to, if you're going to do it, do it with some energy and gusto and spirit, and uh, and I think it does have its rewards.
1: Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, we're honored to be joined by former Congressman David Price, a veteran of American politics, who served North Carolina's fourth congressional district for over three decades. Price was a Moorhead scholar at the University of North Carolina and a graduate of Yale University, where he received a PhD in political science. In Congress, he was for many years a key member of the House Appropriations Committee and was well known for being able to work both sides of the aisle. In addition, he was an early opponent of the 2003 invasion of Iraq and an adversary of media consolidations. In recent years, he worked diligently to promote parliamentary democracy in other countries. Together, we delve into the diminishing partisanship in the United States Congress, a topic that Price has experienced firsthand and explore the nature of conflict and its resolution within the political landscape. We also take a deep dive into the intricacies of North Carolina's electoral politics, shedding light on how Price leveraged polling data to secure his initial victories in the 1980s, We also touch upon the ongoing battle against cynicism in politics, a struggle that the congressman has confronted throughout his career. So whether you're curious about the inner workings of the House of Representatives, or simply intrigued about how the landscape of politics can unlock and shape human potential, stay tuned for this thought-provoking conversation with Congressman David Price.
0: I grew up in a kind of a political environment small town perfectly nice small town in east tennessee but my uh, my parents were uh, i guess inherited the republicanism if they were anything they weren't political they were very civically engaged they were both teachers but they were not uh, not politically uh very engaged at all and uh, so i i grew up not thinking too much about it I, I thought about leadership as a civic role i aspired to that i admired what they did but it wasn't until i uh, Went to college and encountered the civil rights movement that it first dawned on me that I better pay some attention to politics. And also that my inherited Republicanism wasn't really what I believed.
2: Did you go to university of North Carolina?
0: I went to university of North Carolina. My second two years, I went to a junior college near home called Mars Hill in Western North Carolina at first. And that was a, that was a nurturing place, uh, you know, and a, probably a good transition for a small town boy, but, um, it was Chapel Hill that really uh, opened my eyes. I mean, that that was a big change, and the sit-ins were sweeping across the South at that point. And uh, I became president of one of the religious groups on campus, the Baptist group. I wasn't a Baptist, but they nonetheless elected me. And the uh, uh, religious groups were uh, interfaith groups. I was my first interfaith experience, uh, but the religious groups were the ones taking the lead in uh, picketing the theaters and the restaurants in Chapel Hill, which at that point was a uh, Segregated Southern town.
2: Would this have been the the mid nineteen sixties or early
0: late fifties, early sixties? I came to uh, I came to Carolina in the fall of fifty nine and graduated in sixty one. Then went to Yale Divinity School. But but those two years were really formative. And uh, I think uh, looking back on it, that's probably uh, when when people ask how'd you, how'd you get into Congress, how did you ever end up running for Congress? I think probably the answer really goes back to to those years. I uh, whatever. Whatever else I did in life, I was not going to be inattentive to politics, Mm. nor was I going to take cheap shots at government, because um, it became clear in the course of that that politics was absolutely essential to achieving the change that needed to be achieved, and government was essential to uh, making making those changes real. And so uh, those were formative years, and uh, that led then to uh, changes in my religious and political and social thinking. And uh, led me to Yale Divinity School and then to graduate work eventually in political science.
2: Mm. Now, uh, I'm just curious how the, the idea to study political science came out of divinity school. Were those two schools of thought aligned or did it represent kind of a, a, a break?
0: Well, that's a good question because it, it doesn't appear to be the natural combination. Um, but it felt natural to me, I guess, is the way I put it. I, di- I didn't study political science as an undergraduate. I started out to be an engineer like everybody who grew up in the shadow of uh, Sputnik, uh, or most everybody. And it took me a while to figure out that wasn't where I was headed. But uh, I went off to divinity school, uh, really hungering for a liberal arts education. And uh, I wasn't going to consider. It turns out I was I was in a fellowship that encouraged me to uh, consider the ministry. I, pretty quickly decided that was not for me. But I also came to understand this is a good education. This is a good place to be. And so I took um, an array of liberal arts courses, including then getting into political philosophy, especially. I began to think, you know, my abiding interest is probably in politics and political science. And uh, I'd love to be in politics someday, but I also want to have a satisfying career if politics doesn't work out. And so that looked like political science. And so I began taking a few courses in Yale's political science department, I guess, just to show that I could do it. And uh, when the time came, I, I was admitted into the PhD program in political science. So, so it, and of course, there is a lot of connection between the way one studies social ethics in uh, Divinity School and the way one studies political philosophy. There are, are connections, and I later brought some of those connections together in my in my teaching in uh, in ethics in in the Duke's public policy program. But it was um, it was a stretch to, uh, to 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 get into Yale's graduate program. Political science it's a very demanding program, but uh, it was uh, turns out uh, a fairly smooth transition.
2: Mm-hmm. And was the transition after? Um... You finished graduate school. Did you become a, a professor at, at Duke straight away, or was there sort of other stops along the way?
0: Well, I stayed at Yale a while. Uh, I, I did not expect to, to be uh, to be asked to stay, but I was, and uh, decided that that was probably a pretty good uh, pretty good thing to do. That uh, I would eventually go somewhere else, but that this was a this was a very rich environment, and uh, and we we had come to like a New Haven, my. Uh, my wife, by then I I was married, we are, we started our family. My wife got herself elected alderman in New Haven uh, in a, on a reform democratic ticket. And uh, so we were, we were, we enjoyed Yale and New Haven and uh, left with some regrets. But when the Duke offer came, you know, five years into that stint at Yale, there wasn't any question in my mind that it was a dream offer and that I should take it because I was being asked to join. Duke's political science department with my dissertation advisor at Yale as the chairman and being asked to start what's now the Sanford School of Public Policy, which is very exciting. A bunch of young faculty members under the leadership of uh, of Joel Fleischman, who I had also gotten to know at, uh, at Yale. Mm-hmm. We we were uh, asked to put together a, a program in public policy, and I was supposed to figure out what ethics would look like in such a program. So uh, it's pretty exciting. And, uh, and it had the advantage of returning me to an area I'd become very fond of as an undergraduate and and really where I thought if I had any future in politics, it would be in in an area like this one.
2: Mm. What was the trajectory like for you to go from professor at Duke to someone who enters into the field of politics? What did that look like?
0: It looked like the tail eventually wagging the dog. I began taking assignments. I had I had early on been involved in my home state of Tennessee in the last stand of Albert Gore Sr. in the U.S. Senate. So I, I had developed some political experience and some, uh, some connections along the, the way. But in North Carolina, I was asked to take on various political tasks, including then decisive ones were uh, executive director of the Democratic Party in uh, 1980 and then full-time chairman in 84, the year of the Jim Hunt, Jesse Helms' uh, epic uh, Senate race. By that time, the tail was pretty well wagging the dog. I was taking these uh, year-long assignments, but was very, very deeply involved in North Carolina politics. We got our head handed to us in 1984, very uh, devastating loss, including the loss of three congressional seats as well as the Senate race. And so it was at that point that I thought, well, If I'm ever going to run myself, and maybe I could do about as well as some of these folks I've been trying to help, maybe I will do that. And so in 1986, sure enough, I ran for the House. And a mere two years later, after those devastating losses, we won my House seat and another House seat, and Terry Sanford won a Senate seat. So pretty quick turnaround. And that's how my political career got launched.
2: During that time, you mentioned the 1984 Senate race between Jim Hunt and, and Jesse Helms and I, I remember that. That was one of the first elections that I was kind of cognizant of. At that time, how did North Carolina politics skew? Was it a solidly Republican state or what, what were people anticipating in an election like that?
0: Uh, Jim Hunt was a favorite. The, the state the state had elected by then, had elected Republicans and Democrats uh, statewide. But uh, there were still a lot of traditional regionally based Democrats around, and the national money flowed in, the national attention. Jim Hunt, um, as I said, was the favorite, but um, Jesse Helms was the master of the scorched earth TV campaign, and they really did a job on Jim Hunt. And uh, they, they put a lot of money on the air, and these ads were devastating, and very clever, I have to say. But still, it was a big, big disappointment. I mean, I had I'd come of age, you know, politically in, in this North Carolina environment. I mean, come to think of North Carolina as a different sort of Southern state and had had real high hopes for, for the state as a progressive bellwether, uh, certainly in the region. Turned out Jesse Elms was able to uh, run what we thought was a very demagogic campaign with thinly veiled racial themes, and he won. So it was a major setback.
2: I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what it was like for you to engage in that first congressional run in 1986. What do you remember from that?
0: Well, one of the things that reminded me when you said earlier, what about the transition from academic life to politics? I I learned the value of a good poll and how your tactics could uh, change overnight based on that. uh, And it had to do with my academic background. Back then, it was not considered particularly uh, advantageous to come out of an academic background and go into politics. That was, was, these are the years of George Wallace and the pointy-headed intellectuals and all this business. And so I kept my academic credentials pretty well under wraps. <laughs> and then, but we did have enough sense to take a poll and uh, found out a couple of things. One was uh, that uh, when, when people were asked, is teaching and doing research and writing about Congress good preparation for serving in Congress? as opposed to being a state legislature, which was what my uh, my primary opponent was. uh, What do you think about that? And people, people thought teaching about Congress was very good preparation, it turned out, just as good as being a state legislator. Lesson number one. Lesson number two, what do you think of Duke University? We gave the feeling thermometer question, you know, figuring that Duke here in the land of, um, you know, Tar Heels and Wolfpack wouldn't, wouldn't rank too high. And uh, guess what? Everybody thought a lot of Duke University, it turned out. So, so we went from playing down my academic background to actually shooting an ad at me at the blackboard in the classroom. <laughs> okay. Turned out uh, the politics were were a little different than I had thought, and 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 to my uh, advantage, it was an adventure that first race. I mean, I uh, I thought you know I'd been state party chairman in a high profile race. I thought well I'm pretty well known, and then I just started uh, visiting every uh, church supper, every uh, crossroads uh, barbecue I could find. You know, after a year of this, I found my name recognition, despite all this. Exposure as party chairman, despite all this work out in the five-county district, my name recognition was about 10%. And uh, ju- just how on earth do you ever break out of that? You know, what I, what I ended up doing was raising enough money to put a few ads on the air. My media guy wouldn't like hear me say this, but they were kind of home movie type ads. And um, the, the idea was, aren't you fed up with all the backbiting and all the conflict and all the uh, uh, nastiness of North Carolina politics? We need, to, we need to make it better. That was basically my, my theme. And uh, my, my name recognition tripled mm. with with two weeks of a very modest ad buy. My name recognition tripled and I uh, was on my way to winning that primary. So it was, I've never done anything as hard in my life as raise money in a contested primary with a Republican incumbent. That was not easy, nor was it easy to keep it all going, keep everybody's morale up. But we... Uh, of course, were elated by the primary outcome and got a fresh head of steam. So the primary election was not quite as hard. Although uh, there again, I was running against a Republican incumbent and uh, managed to uh, prevail. the The seat had long been held by by Democrats. Mm. This Republican incumbent had had ousted Ike uh, Andrews, my my predecessor, uh, two years before. So it was we always said, if you're going to get an incumbent, get them their first time out, and that's what we managed to do.
2: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Wow. So what's life like for uh, a first-term congressperson going up to Capitol Hill
0: well it's it probably varies depending on your background and what you bring to it and what you uh, what you what you uh, what your expectations are I uh, despite never having had elective office I I still pretty well knew what to expect I had been a staff member I got hired off the street when I was in the Bindy school actually to work for an Alaska senator and ended up uh, going back there five summers and Writing my dissertation out of his office, so I uh, I knew I knew the staff scene pretty well, and I had studied Congress, and I uh, so I kind of knew what I wanted uh, out of uh, my staff. I wanted uh, a lot of initiative, a lot of uh, entrepreneurship, looking for looking for opportunities to to do things. I, uh, I understood the value of good constituent service and maintaining solid district operations. So I had a leg up in some ways. also, uh, a Duke graduate student, I lured him away from his uh, graduate studies and he became my legislative director. His name is Paul Fellman. And uh, Paul and I cooked up a a bill. We said, we're going to do a bill becomes a law, just like the textbook. And so we uh, we picked this hot new financial product at that time, home equity loans, second mortgages, which were unregulated, totally, wild west. We wrote a bill getting some ground rules in place for uh, home equity loans. And with one hour to spare, in that Congress, uh, that bill passed. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I did have. Um, it, the, looking back, it was it was a great experience, mm. and kind of confirmed for me that I was suited for this, and and that uh, this is really what I wanted to do. I uh, subsequently lost an election in '94, so I almost didn't get to continue doing it. But fortunately, I fortunately for me anyway, I had a comeback in '96 and stayed there until now.
2: I want to get to '94. Concerning what I perceive as the breakdown of bipartisanship, would you be able to speak about the state of bipartisanship when you first entered Congress?
0: Yeah, I, uh, I, I welcome the chance to reflect on that because uh, there's no question it's become more more sharply partisan and more polarized. But it, there's also no question that uh, what we saw with Jesse Helms and those Scourge Darth uh, races, uh, all of this had, had its origins back then. That, those were the years when, uh, or not long after that, when Rush Limbaugh began holding forth on the radio, and there were some very extreme forces at work, not in control of either party yet, but uh, still, races were pretty, uh, pretty tough sometimes, and uh, and I certainly was on the receiving end of those. I uh, I remember my uh, my third campaign, not the one I lost, but the one before that. My third campaign, we uh, had had an experience about how much worse things were getting. We had always. We developed a kind of playbook for dealing with uh, negative ads, the kind of attacks that we knew were coming, and uh, it basically consisted of calling the opponent out, saying, "You know, come on, let's uh, let's focus on the issues, let's not descend into this name calling, and so on." And and you know that worked pretty well for a couple of cycles, but then that third campaign, it didn't work. I had a self-funding opponent. Who was holding me responsible for the savings and loan crisis? He ran ads of me with dollar signs flashing in my eyes, and uh, it turned out uh, people were inclined to believe the worst. So the uh, the old tactics didn't work, and we had to we had to long story, but basically we figured out how to crack the code and and win that election. But it um, it was an indication that that things were getting tougher and that uh, there was more cynical. View public view of, of politics, and so the it was, it was going to be rough sledding ahead. And then, of course, I I lost an election in '94, which was a tough sledding indeed. That was the Gingrich Revolution, and I ran. A, they convinced people that crime, even though we had have always had a very low crime district, here, managed to convince people that crime was a big issue that year. And of course, that would be the year that I was running against the Raleigh police chief. So. <laughs> So I didn't manage to lose lose that, that election. But then um, I came back in 1996. So I would say that there's been a uh, a kind of undercurrent of, uh, not, not always undercurrent, often quite visible uh, kind of right-wing politics that has uh, been very, has thrived on conflict, tried to foment conflict. I mean, that's been a feature of our politics for a long time. Gingrich was the harbinger of it. A lot, a lot that flows from Gingrich's rise to House leadership on the Republican side. And then his um, the kind of campaign he oversaw when he became Speaker. Having said that, it is it is more divided now. I think the way I described coming to Congress, wanting to learn the ropes, wanting to uh, have a legislative success, uh, just feeling so fortunate to be there. You know, I remember those those days, those early days. I don't know that a lot of a lot of members don't necessarily come with that same perspective. Now they uh, have been recruited by the party, funded by the party. They they have a D or an R on their shirt, and they are partisan lawyers. Others are uh, increasingly uh, tied to social media, and that that's on both sides of the aisle. Alexandria Ocasio Cortez in our party came to Congress with nine million media followers. Nine million. That's more than Nancy. That's four times more than Nancy Pelosi as Speaker ever had. Mm. It, and of course it's even more prevalent on the republican side all all that you saw that first week of this new congress with these these guys uh, uh, failing to elect the speaker until what was it 13 votes or so 13 ballots well they were raising money that's what those guys were doing they were raising money uh, on social media big time and and the obvious implication of that is they didn't have much regard for their institutional responsibilities mm. and i i would say just uh draw a, a lesson from this. Uh, I do think democracy is in trouble without uh, institutions that work well. And democracy is not just about having elections. Democracy is, some, is figuring out somehow how to get the contending forces in society together and work out policies that address the, the common good. And, and when you can't do that, living to fight another day, I mean, that's the way democracy works. It depends on institutions. That have some degree of loyalty from their members, where you invest in the institution. You're not just playing to an external audience continually, and that's uh, that's much more pronounced than now than it than it was then. You you see you saw this coming with Rush Limbaugh and cable outlets, very partisan cable outlets. Mm. Now with social media, some members basically specialize in social media, as opposed to worrying about getting along with their colleagues or doing the work of the institution. If that ever becomes the dominant trend, then I'd say democracy's in trouble.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned uh, cable news, et cetera. You were involved in, if I'm not mistaken, involved in various legislative initiatives to kind of roll back FCC rules, prevent media consolidation. Oh, yeah. Would you be open to discussing some of your views on media ownership?
0: Well, all of that seems kind of quaint now because the, uh, you, know, you know, I feel like uh, history has passed us by. But yes, I. Uh, I felt that strongly. I had a interesting experience as a young person in my hometown back in the fifties. There was a wave of uh, uh, of formation of radio stations, I, thousand watt stations all over this country. I I don't know quite why it was. I think the FCC opened up the airwaves and and many stations were formed, including one in my hometown. And so I uh, boy that was uh, that was really something to be a high school senior there on on the radio with a request show. I had I had a good time and. Uh, but I, I developed uh, a feel for uh, small town media, and ironically, ironically, small town radio was one of the first to go. <laughs> I mean, so many stations for some time now have actually been been run by remote control with, uh, with very little in the way of local input or local local content. And over the years media has consolidated across different kinds of media, cross media ownership has in, increased and uh, the concentration of ownership, people owning thousands of stations and uh, hundreds of newspapers and so on. So I, uh, along with a, a kind of maverick head of a major, actually our, our ma- major TV station here, the one with the largest audience, he, he's a maverick in the industry though. And he, he really was a champion of local media and so I took a lot of cues from him, but we uh, we had we had a good time back some years ago in trying to uh, at least put the brakes on media's consolidation. Mm-hmm. Turned out people really cared about that. I you know I thought well this is kind of a uh, an esoteric issue nobody's going to care much, and and so we had we organized a uh, a meeting over at the Duke Law School just to talk about this and thought that'd be a fairly wonkish technical discussion. Well, turned out we had an overflow crowd. And people were just up in arms about this and about big media.
2: One thing that seems interesting to me is that I would have um, I would have guessed this is coming from a, a Republican president. But as, as to my knowledge, it came from Clinton during one of his terms. He allowed great consolidation of media. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, I would have to reconstruct it a little bit. Uh, there was not a clear partisan difference. And and you're talking here about um about the FCC, the the regulatory agency as well as uh, administration policy, but 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 yes, I'd I'd say that there are a lot of fingerprints on on this, uh, and that it's not strictly partisan.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, back to the, the 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 partisan discussion. It seemed that during your time in Congress, you were known as somebody who could work across the aisle. Part of that being your work on the House Appropriations Committee. I know that that House Appropriations Committee has a has a tradition of bipartisanship. How did you navigate when where there were disagreements or conflicts within the committee re- regarding budget allocation?
0: That's an interesting insight. It is true that um, Appropriations has a history as a less partisan committee. And uh, <clears throat> when you ask yourself why that's so, I think uh, there are a lot of reasons. But the main one is that, that uh, the power of the purse, the power to appropriate which not every parliament of the world has. In fact, we have an unusual degree of power in that regard in the Congress. You know, that's an institutional function. And with it comes the the, 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 the duty, I think, to uh, scrutinize every line in the budget and also to scrutinize past performance. No matter if it's your president or not, in terms of party, you, you have an institutional responsibility to hold the executive uh, accountable and then to write a uh, very closely considered uh Executive budget. The the president originates the budget, of course, but but, uh, we have very great power to reduce, increase, modify, condition um, aid, and to uh, therefore influence uh, policy. So, uh, for a long time, that was considered a major institutional function, and uh, the uh, two parties would come together and defend appropriations bills uh, against, as I said, presidents of all persuasions. And uh, like a lot of other things, that has um, been, been modified in recent years, and often appropriations has been swamped by, by larger partisan forces. And uh, you, you may remember the the appropriations bill for the last Congress, the last one I was there for, uh, wasn't passed until December 22nd, you know, three months into the fiscal year with uh, just enough Republican support to get it done. And I was very happy to see that, but it certainly didn't come easily. And it wasn't like uh, there was a presumption at the start, well, this is going to sail through on a, a bipartisan basis. So not, not at all. So it has become more partisan, but it is still, all things considered, it is still one of the more cooperative places in the Congress to work. And that's one reason I liked it. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the the kind of vestige of that earlier way of operating is, um, is the way we write our bills. I think that's where it's most obvious that when the president's budget come down, we have hearings, and then we write a bill, the, the chairman's mark, we call it. But the chairman's mark Uh, typically has a lot of input from the ranking Republican member or or, or vice versa when the party uh, control is is reversed. And uh, that is one reason. And that on December 22nd, when it comes right down to it, you know, you look back and say, well, it was a good thing that we put this together initially on a bipartisan basis, because that makes it easier to get a deal uh, in the end. There still is a lot of that on appropriations. I had very cordial Working relationship with my uh, Republican counterpart Mario diaz of Florida, Florida, and uh, I think he would say the same about same about me when I was the ranking minority member and he was the chairman. So yes, it's a it's a it's a it's one of the more cooperative places to work. And another, another reason I guess is that you're not making absolute policy decisions; you're saying more or less. is <laughs> a lot better than yes or no. Mm. You know, more dollars, fewer dollars. You can compromise more in that realm. Maybe then you can uh, if you're wanting to, uh, to, to uh, you know, take policy in a certain uh, direction. Let me also say that the, the most bipartisan thing I ever did was in the international realm. I, uh, I initiated then and then chaired or co-chaired the House Democracy Partnership for the last half of my term of service. And that's a bipartisan commission that works with parliaments and emerging democracies to, uh, to uh, share best practices. And we uh, really put a lot of stock in that, in that work. That was totally, was and is totally bipartisan. And uh, we, we thought it would work best that way. And sure enough, it has.
2: Yes, definitely. That House Democracy Partnership, which aims to promote effective government, strengthen democratic institution in other countries. Tell me a little bit more about that. Where In what countries have you seen uh, this work come to fruition?
0: Well, since you put it that way, it's, uh, you know, the scorecard is, <laughs> isn't what we'd like it to be. Uh, you, you can imagine uh, we've um, we let me just back up a little bit. We yes. we started all this in the uh, uh, I started it and, and actually with the Republican speaker got it formed. So that was a bipartisan act at the at the very start of this. But it uh, we, we were building on the work of uh, the task force of by uh, Martin Frost back in the uh, 90s when the Iron Curtain fell and, and the Soviet Union dissolved. And all these parliaments, all these showcase parliaments all of a sudden they had to become real parliaments. It was a great initiative. I, I, as a new member of Congress, I was a part of uh, many trips to uh, Central and Eastern Europe, trying to help uh, help them get their libraries up and running. Their, I, we sent staff members to help them with their IT and various things. And then and then Newt Gingrich came in and shut it down. A lot of a lot of other things. And so, but I always thought it was really important work, and uh, and kept trying to bring it back, and finally did that around uh, 2000. And, five or so and we still you ask about which countries we still figure there's a lot of unfinished business in central and eastern europe so we we engaged uh, early on places like ukraine georgia macedonia kosovo and then uh, later added armenia moldova uh, so a lot of unfinished business in uh, in central and eastern europe and then worldwide we uh some very strategically important countries like kenya indonesia uh, we worked in mongolia and Liberia, timor Leste, east east timor peru colombia all, all over the world in very diverse countries but what holds them together what what connects them is that uh, they're all struggling democracies who uh, have had have had some success with peaceful transition of power but are still struggling to make democratic institutions work and i and i'd say we're still struggling yeah, yeah. especially since uh, the last couple of years i would I, we've always been pretty pretty modest about our own achievements we we understand that democracy is always a work in progress never to be considered perfected but uh, we have every reason especially in this country now to to be aware of that so we we treat this as a partnership is is the word we treat this as a common venture where we're trying to uh, make representative institutions uh, effective.
2: What are some of the main challenges you've encountered in promoting parliamentary democracy in other countries?
0: Well, I know you I know you have a special interest in levels of conflict and conflict of resolution, and uh, that's very high on the agenda in these uh, in these countries and you just realize what some of these people have been through this is literally their parliament It's literally the uh, alternative to fighting in the streets people are uh, serving in in these institutions often at great personal uh, risk and sacrifice and uh, I, I just have the highest respect in a small plucky country like uh, moldova or a place like mongolia uh, you, you just think about the kind of pressures they're under the kind of uh, the perils that they uh, encounter sometimes from hostile neighbors I uh, just have a lot of respect for for what they uh, they do so we uh, we talk about things that might seem mundane we we may talk about uh, how, uh, how about the budget process for example or about how you set up an ethics process or what do you do about constituent services and how do you uh Reach out to your constituents and help them with uh, navigating uh, the agencies of government. Uh, you know a lot of things. How do you set up a library or or professional staff uh, so that you have some degree of confidence that you can a- assess uh, proposals that come from the executive? So a lot of these things we uh, we help with, but try to help with. Often though, the question is, what about uh, what about this? Uh, this conflict, this uh, the handling of the opposition, the uh, people who boycott the parliament, and 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 the uh, it's not obvious always that the thing to do is to hang around and work things out. Sometimes more extreme tactics uh, have some some history, and and so I was just in a country that was where this was true. I uh, it's the only trip like this I've taken since I retired, but I went to uh, went to Guyana in South America, which. Uh, it kind of rang true in some ways. They had a they had an election. One party tried to rig the election, and uh, they're now in the minority in the parliament, but not not happily so. And so, it's a real challenge for them to uh, find any basis for 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 cooperation. You know, you don't you don't handle situations like that, in my opinion. Just going coming in and moralizing, saying can't we all get along? You know, that doesn't get you very far. You you need to uh, you need to legitimate people's uh, expressions of uh, frustration and betrayal sometimes. And, uh, you know, it's not that you try to paper over those things, but you you do try to ask, given these deep divisions and given the fact that we've got to live together and work together. In the case of the U.S., of course, having a constitutional arrangement that says you shut the place down if you don't work together. You know, in these situations, uh, how do you find some kind of basis for, uh, for common ground, for achieving uh, Compromise, and then how do you uh, just all agree we'll, we'll lift a fight another day on some of these other issues? This debt ceiling thing that we're going through right now is uh, is very frustrating to me as, as watching it as a former member. It, uh, it's a totally, totally unnecessary fight, for one thing. I mean, there's plenty of things that you need to fight over and they're worth fighting over. This is a phony fight, just set up for as a political uh, gotcha game. Having said that, though, there still is a question of, uh, of negotiating uh, objectives and negotiating style and uh, how you, uh, and we don't know, of course, how it's going to turn out, but uh, the, uh, this one is tough, and, and it's often tough. You, you need to have an alternative to shutting down the government as a way of showing that you care about something. A lot rides on people's ability to uh, live with conflict and to uh, find a way through, to, to navigate through the processes of the government. Um, Despite deep conflicts,
2: mm, mm, yes. You know, I want to ask you about cynicism. Uh, sometimes, when I think about politics in the United States today, and, and abroad, some cynicism comes into the picture for me because I, you know, I'm just thinking about gun control, our our inability to deal with guns in the United States, and all these mass shootings and anti-trans bills, which have become so prevalent, so so really pushed forward by the by Republican agenda. I know that it would be anathema for you to become cynical. And, and my question, I, I suppose, is just how do you avoid becoming cynical as a congressman?
0: It's a good question. How do you—we we had that question after people refused to certify the, uh, the election of Joe Biden. How do you then turn around, people, people actually willing to deny the peaceful transfer of power after a legitimate election? How do you, how do you work with uh, people like that after uh, a violation that that's severe? It's, it's not an easy question to uh to answer I don't, I don't want to offer some kind of glib uh assurance that one can do that easily you you cannot you you need to just have some perspective i guess is the best i can counsel uh we do have we do have a saying uh, you compromise where you can and fight where you must but you know that really doesn't solve much of anything because the art is in knowing which is which and which calls for which uh-huh. and that's the art of politics and i do think as with all conflict resolution, the answer is not to paper over the conflicts or minimize the conflicts or just seek out the mushy middle. No, I think we have to have a process which lets us fully air our views, express our principles. But then we also need mechanisms that let us um, let us segment problems and, and and solve pieces of a puzzle without taking on the whole thing. That requires a kind of democratic um, small d democratic culture. You know where you where you have enough confidence in the process and uh, enough acceptance of your fellow citizens to uh, to let you uh, not make every battle Armageddon Mm -hmm. you know take it one step at a time I say that knowing full well that it's easier said than done
2: yes yes and it's a difficult question and I apologize if it's something that feels sort of like unanswerable but I'm assuming that you have some sort of expertise in it, given the fact that you were able to be a Congressperson for how many terms did you serve? It was—it seemed like it could span decades.
0: <laughs> Seventeen out of a possible eighteen, I guess you would say, given the given the ninety-four uh, laws.
2: Esalen Institute, where this show originates, is is predicated around this notion of human potential and just the idea that we we walk around in this state of untapped capabilities, but given the right environment, the right teachings and such, we could become much more. Where do you come out on all of that?
0: I know something about Esalen and really appreciate your your work there. Appreciate the, the long-time service of my friend Sam Farr, who represented that area of the Congress with great integrity uh, for a long time. Wonderful, wonderful man. Um, I think uh, probably what I can best say in this environment is uh, it's, it's tempting to shy away from politics, maybe sometimes, people who have these who have these uh, ethical and and sort of personal developmental concerns Mm -hmm. to think that that politics is not a very promising arena for uh, fulfillment or involvement. even. And I, I, I'm certainly not saying everybody should dive head first into politics, but I, I, I do think that when we're talking about the kind of community we want to live in, where, where human beings can realize their potential and where they're not, um, stigmatized because of this or that quality and where we all have some sense that we're working for the common good you know that that uh, that the moral life is is a is a social life it's not, it's not just a, a matter of of self fulfillment it's a matter of fulfillment in community and uh, you know all of those things i'm sure for a lot of your listeners are very very real uh, concerns and uh, and the hurly burly of politics may seem at best irrelevant and at worst uh, uh, an unwelcome distraction. And uh, I guess I would just urge against that. View. First of all, there are a lot of a lot of nice people in politics. My uh, my late wife used to say that she loved uh, both the camaraderie and the cause. You know about the cause. You know the kind of social uh, ideals that we uh, that we fight for. But the camaraderie is is important. It's. Uh, there, there are a lot of a lot of like-minded people. It turns out I discovered this first in the civil rights movement. People from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of uh, belief systems. Yet so they come together for a cause, and uh, there's a lot of that in politics. and And I'd I'd say politics is the most racially inclusive endeavor I've ever been involved in. It's the most inclusive endeavor in many ways, because you 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 know you have, you have to operate that way. And so I would say it has its rewards. And I would say even when it becomes unpleasant and difficult, it is a necessity. We just don't have the luxury of uh, dispensing with politics and, and government. That was true in the civil rights years. It's just amazing how quickly a movement became laws that really did protect people's uh, rights. Mm. And that didn't happen without politics, and it did not happen without government. And so um, I've always uh, said that that's, that's, that's why I'm in this business, that, that fundamentally is why I'm in this business. Uh, and uh, I would think that would recommend itself to a lot of your listeners as well. There's just uh, no denial that in a democracy, uh, if we're going to stand for something and act on behalf of what we believe, that politics can't just be uh, dispensed with. It's got to be something that if you're going to do it, do it well, okay. If you're going to if you're going to do it, do it with some energy and gusto and spirit, and uh, and I think it does have its rewards.
2: Mm, Congressman David Price, thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you so much for your dedicated work to this
1: country and to its people.
0: Mm, thank you. Enjoyed it.
1: Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. This episode was produced in conjunction with Shira Levine. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman esalen institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing human potential and promoting positive social change your support helps us to continue to offer transformative programs and retreats that promote personal growth and collective well-being to learn more about esalen and how you can support our mission visit our website at esalen.org